listening to Hear the Turtle. Your hosts are Taylor Slife and Keith Snedden. Welcome back to the Hear the Turtle Mixtape. This is volume two of our 2017 wrap-up. And last time, we got to hear of all of our interviews with the student-athletes. Now it's time for the coaches, and we're going to start with our fall sports coaches. And we talked to DJ Durkin, Sasha Sarowski, Steve Aird, Walt Bell, Deanna Cantu, and Katie Bam. All of them had very, very interesting stuff. We started out with DJ Durkin and Sasha Skrowski, two of the heavy hitters, and then just went from on from there. Yeah, that, that first episode, Scott Van Pelt and DJ Durkin. And it was really cool just to sit down with DJ and get to know his story a little bit, what makes him tick. But we got some pretty talented coaches on the staff, wouldn't you say, Taylor? There's no doubt about it. We also took an incredibly awkward photo with DJ Durkin that we'll never Ooh, see the light of day. That's right. I'm, I'm glad we uh, we kind of you know socked that away. As people have seen, we take photos with a lot of our different guests. And the photo <laughs> with DJ didn't exactly turn out that well, Keith. A fault I, of both of ours. I went for the lean, okay? I went for the lean in. I you know, I am a tall guy. Compared you are to, a tall guy. You're compared, taller, certainly taller than Coach Durkin. Well, hanging around with our basketball program doesn't make me feel like that. But, you know, I, I just I went in for the lean, and it just didn't turn out the way I needed it. Yeah, to. and I just had an awkward look and smile, and <laughs> just no one needs to see that photo unless you come to the Maryland Media Relations oh, office. Gosh. But, you know, we talked to Sasha Scrafty as well going into his 25th season. Steve Aird was a ride. We went for a, a while with him. He's one of our longer interviews. And then Deanna Conte was one of our most fun. Somebody I don't think we thought we'd talk to during the fall, but gave us a lot of interesting stuff. And then... I think we could hear Walt Bell talk forever. So let's go listen to some of our fall sports coaches. Back here on Hear the Turtle and our second ever guest, football head coach DJ Durkin. After Scott Van Pelt, coach, not a bad guy to follow, but thanks for being on. I was about to say, you know, why wasn't I the first? <laughs> now knowing it's SVP, that, that, that's the right order. Now, coach, you've obviously made a name for yourself as a recruiter. Um, and this freshman class was a, was a big part of, of that recruiting process. What is it about the recruiting process that you really enjoy that you've really kind of um, you know, sunk your teeth into as a coach so far? Well, the process as a whole is, is the fun part to me is just the, the relationships you build, the people you get to know. It's, um, I mean, it's always every, every individual recruit has its own unique um, kind of setup. I mean, to me, it's all about like, like piecing the puzzle together every time. Like who, who, who's playing a role in this process? Who, who's saying what, who's he listening to? And, and you, you kind of, so every one of those is unique and just, just getting to know all the people around it. And I mean, it, it's a very competitive thing. You know, you're, you're competing against your, your, the people you, you play against and recruit against. And so that's anything that, that has a winner and loser, I, I like to be involved in. And uh, so it just, it makes it enjoyable. I mean, I think that's what it's about. I, I just, the other day, um, Yesterday, as a matter of fact, when, when uh, the, the Colts and the Lions had a preseason game, and th there were several guys in that game that, that, that I've coached at previous places, they all took a picture together, the, the players and their families, they were all at the game together and, and sent it to me. And it's like, I mean, that's what it's all about. I mean, you, you see yeah. that, it's like, you know, those are people you, you've made a relationship with that will last forever. I was going to ask that sort of off that recruiting point. As you said, you make those sort of lifetime relationships, but is there any sort of specific story that you can remember from the recruiting process, whether it be here or another place where you, where you thought, man, this is like something I really enjoy doing, going to you know guys' living rooms and being able to meet with their families, anything that jumps out of you, or is it just generally you enjoy each part of those yeah, processes? I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of those, but, but in general, it's just, yeah, I think that's what, like, it makes it unique, and you, the, all those experiences are different, you know, whether you're going – going to a place of work where a mom or dad is at and going to see them at work or, you know, there's, there's, you know, brothers and sisters involved or going to see grandma or just, I mean, you know, there were, there was times, um, I was recruiting a guy out, out of the, out of the state of North Carolina. I'd go, go sit with, um, his grandma and grandpa. They, they, they owned a, a little local car wash and 
sit there for hours with them, just <laughs> hanging out. You know what I mean? Like that. Like, you know, you'd be sitting there. What other job do you do that? You yeah. know, like I mean, yeah, you're working and it's it's part of what you do, but you're you're hanging out in the, on the sitting in a chair in the front of a car wash and just just talking. So, um, you know, it would, all, all those experiences are different. What, what, whatever whatever is called for to me is what you got to do to to make sure you're you're building that relationship the right way and and, and bringing in guys that, that you want to be part of your program. Now we're obviously sitting here in an office that overlooks a football stadium and a football field. So clearly you have dedicated a lot of your adult life to football and even going back farther than that. Is there a specific time early in your life when you were a kid out playing that you remember when you f- you first fell in love with the game or it was just sort of a process that that's always gone through. Is there any time where you're like that's when I really knew that football was the thing that I was going to focus a lot of my time on? Right. I, I Two things. I mean, I, when I was younger, for whatever reason, I, I always loved football, loved watching, loved playing in the backyard. I, my dad wouldn't allow me to play until I was in seventh grade. Like play organized football with pads. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm glad he did. I mean, it was the right decision. But I, I like so when I finally got to play, like I mean, I was chomping at the bit for years. <laughs> you know, so I had to like, d- d- I played all the other sports, but just the, he wanted to hold me out of that one until seventh grade, and then so it was great once I got to start playing and, and kept loving it. And well, I think when I when I knew I. When I figured out for a living what I wanted to do, I mean, it was always in the back of my mind. That's probably what I wanted to do, but I didn't know for sure. And my uh, senior year of, of college, I was a business major. I, I was invited to a um, uh, like a sales and marketing type uh, type thing. It was it was pretty good. I mean, one of the professors at the school was a big football fan, so that he invited me to it. It was supposed to be like the top two students. Trust me, I wasn't one of the top two <laughs> students, but it just worked out that way. But anyways, we go down to the, this thing, and it was it was at uh, Baylor University, and, and there was. You know, a lot of great companies there, and they're recruiting and uh, job offers and everything else. And I spent two days down there, and I, I remember I, mean, I, I, I remember calling my dad from down there and said, well, I know for sure this is not what I want to do. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. do something with, with, with football. And uh, that was it. That was my moment. Now you talk about that right competitive mindset. We were interested sort of when you look outside of football. Are there any specific athletes or people you watch when you, when you have the TV on that you like to tune in for, uh, you know, who sort of you see with that same competitive spirit that obviously you have when you want your players to have? Yeah, I, mean, I I love all sports. I mean, growing up, I played sports year round. Whatever sport was going on, that's what I played, and still follow a lot of them. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I just I love competitors. You know, I I love. Uh, I mean, Jordan Spieth, the comeback he had, you know, a, a couple weeks ago. I mean, like that, that was like you to me. You can't even measure how, how cool that was to watch. Just a guy, you know, when it, when, to lose the lead and then play the way he finished his what was last four holes or five holes yeah. was just amazing. So like. Love stuff like that. Love watching, you know, LeBron compete, Kobe Bryant when he when he was still playing at the peak of his game. Just guys like that, and and you know, Tiger Woods when he was at the peak of his game. I mean, just people that that have that competitive fire about them. I love it in, in any sport, whatever they're doing. You can just tell they have something about them inside that they're going to respond when 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 it's when it's needed. Their best performance is needed. They're, they're going to be on their best. So. Going off that, you were at Dave and Buster's a few weeks ago for that Terps on tour, and you were going heads up in some video games with your two kids. Who was getting the better of it? Were you, <laughs> were you, you know, the ultimate competitor going after it, or were the kids who kind of knew it a little bit better? Right. Just put it this way: there, there's no just letting them win. In our <laughs> right, we're not. We're, we're playing. We're playing. And, and uh, I, I've been called a sore winner before. Too. <laughs> I'll do some taunting. So we're back here on here, the turtle with the legend himself. Maryland men's soccer coach Sasha Sharovsky. Coach, how you doing? I'm doing great. Great to be with you guys today. Coach, so the big storyline going into the season for you mm-hmm. personally is it's your 25th season in College Park. Obviously, that's brought a lot of success through the years. What are the types of things that come to your mind when you look back on those 25 years? 
Oh, it's, it's this, this is a dream job for me. Um, you know, the minute I walked on this campus, I knew this is what I wanted to do, and we could do some great things here. Um, in my first year, we uh, I took over a five and twelve team, and things didn't go so well. We ended up three and fourteen. I didn't think <laughs> we, could, we could be any worse, but uh, you know, we laid the foundation and the seeds of. Uh, of what I knew could be here, and we quickly turned it around, and uh, we've had a tremendous amount of success here. And I, I just always felt this university was a sleeping giant, the soccer program was a sleeping giant, and it's always been my goal to contend for titles every year. You know, I, and and um, we've we've made no bones about it. Our goal every year is to be national champion, and uh, we schedule hard teams. We bring in players that uh, that want to embrace that challenge, knowing it's going to be tough. We we schedule tough teams. Um, I like to schedule every game where I think I could lose that game. Uh, and that motivates me and motivates the players. Um, and that's what makes you better. That's, that's how you grow. And, um, but the, yeah, this, is, this, is, this has just been a, a, a great run. I can't believe it's 25 <laughs> years. And really, I mean, it's, it's you know, I think 45% of my life already. Uh, I've, been, <laughs> I've been coaching here. And uh, I, I got to say, I've loved every minute of it. Um, you know, I could have gone to many, many places over time. Uh, whether it's to the professional ranks or other college programs, uh, but I've always been just uh, really uh, in love with this place. Um, and I still think the best is yet to come. I think we've got a few more things uh, to accomplish while I'm here, and uh, hopefully we can make a deep run this year. Well, you know, I, I, I always felt Friday Night Lights could be a, a good positioning strategy for college soccer. When I first got into the ACC, uh, the games were on Sundays. And you're going up against the NFL, and it was tough. And I remember when we first started getting some games on television, I kept pushing the idea within within uh, college soccer that we need to find our place. And I thought Friday nights was that place to find. So we were at the front edge of Maryland to do that. And I always scheduled, you know, big teams all the time. And UCLA certainly is one of those teams that we've scheduled a lot. But uh, you know, it, it's just great. It, it's a it's a it's a great. Uh, Time to be on TV. Great for the students to to come out and support it. Uh, the school week is is finishing up, um, and every year we keep setting record crowds. I think this Friday against UCLA, uh, you know, um, is going to be epic again. And what's funny is every school in the country, every top team calls me now. They want to be in that Friday night game because wow. in many ways. It's the highlight game of the year. It, it, you know, unfortunately, our College Cup has not been super successful. So right now, this is kind of like the night in college soccer. Uh, it's one of those special nights, and uh, I'm glad it's at Ludwig Field. Now, Coach, you mentioned that student support, and the crew has become such an integral yeah. part of the game day experience. Walk us through a little bit about the genesis of that group and that fan support and how it's grown over the years. Well, that's got a little UCLA tie-in as well. Um, so in 2002, we lost to UCLA, uh, a heartbreaker in the College Cup in Dallas. And and I knew that uh, we need to do something back home to, to really make uh, our stadium a little bit more intimate. So I spent a lot of time that spring and summer to find a way to draw our fans and have them become a part of who we are. So we opened up the season in 2003 against UCLA, and it became quite organic. You know, students start to see the red seats lining around Ludwig behind the goal. Uh, we had a number of our, of our, of our uh, student fans that uh, decided to, um, to sit behind the goal. And uh, there was a couple of them that decided that uh, they're going to bring their crew and heckle the heck out of the other goalkeeper. <laughs> and uh, e e eventually the crew was formed. And it's amazing. You know, this is my 25th year. This is their 15th year. Uh, it, and, it's, and it's been a group that's grown and grown. And, 
you know, I've uh, written letters of recommendation for many of the crew members who've gotten jobs, uh, still keep in touch with them. Uh, it's, it's like they're a part of our team. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I've had uh, people who've met at crew games who've been married. It's been incredible, really. It, it's, it's been one of the things that really brings a lot of pride uh, to me because our program, you know, I think is bigger than just winning games. I think we've become a, a, a big part of not only this campus, but this community. And, and, and when you're that connected to the students and you get that kind of appreciation and support and pride, it really makes you feel very significant. Um, and, and that's been a source of pride. Now, you mentioned this earlier, but take me back to some of those early days when you first got here on campus. You know, what were some of those benchmark moments along the way where you were kind of, you know, having the feeling that you were developing something special here at Maryland? Well, you know, when I first got to Maryland, uh, the, you know, and I took over that team in 93. A lot of the players were taking classes during practice. They, they didn't want to come to practice. They, they were making excuses. And, and, I, and I got on that group and I challenged them. I still remember in the spring of, 90, of 92, my first spring, I took that team, um, excuse me, 94, spring of 94, after the 93 team. I, I took them to uh, play UVA in the spring, and we got hammered 5 nothing. And a couple of the players were complaining, why are we playing this team? You know, they just won four national titles in a row. Why are we doing this in the spring? And I, I really dug into them and told them that we're going to come back here in a, in a couple of years. We're going to beat the crap out of this team. <laughs> and, and we're going we're to plant the Maryland flag as – as, as the team to beat in the ACC. Well, in 96, in November of 96, we went to Virginia. We won the ACC tournament. We set a record for most goals scored and least goals allowed. We held Virginia shotless through 70 minutes. We beat them 2-0 at their place in a packed house on national television. And that's what I envisioned happening. And that moment in 96 really showed the whole country that Maryland is here. We're for real. And since then, we've had quite a bit of success. And we're back here on Hear the Turtle with head volleyball coach Steve Aird. Coach, thanks for joining us. Pleasure, gentlemen. And one of the parts of that vision, besides recruiting and getting the players in here, was creating a different atmosphere and environment in Maryland volleyball matches. And for people that haven't been there, you guys have made it sort of a party atmosphere. I, I sort of call it like a flamethrower of noise. I know you've had some different words to describe it. What can people expect when they come to a Maryland volleyball match besides the talent you've brought in? Yeah, you know, I, I might not be able to coach, but I can throw a party. And so, <laughs> and so early, I thought that, you know, what I can't do when building a program in this conference is you can't try to out Nebraska, Nebraska, or out Penn State, Penn State. I mean, they've been doing uh, things at the highest level for 35, 40 years. So for me, it's, you know, part of it was my personality and part of it was the area and the youth and, and kind of the excitement that we wanted to bring the ta to the table at matches. And so, yeah, it's loud. I mean, there's a live DJ, there's energy. You've got high school teams doing dance-offs against each other. And, and the way I've described it, it's, it's a giant party that happens to have a volleyball match going on at the same time. So that's, that's been uh, – it's, it's a tough environment for people to play. Uh, opposing coaches have told me it's uh, not not fun for them, but you know, for me, it's it's got to be different, and it has to have an edge to it, and it's got to be it's got to be fun. Talk about that a little bit. The getting recruits to buy in to coming here. Obviously, you came here, and the history is not there, like you talked about with the other Big Ten teams. The recent success has not been here. Even facilities, which you guys are now upgrading. What have you gone out and sold? Because we talked about that with Coach Durkin a couple of weeks ago, that sort of similar thing where you have to go out and really sell a program. What, for you, is that pitch like? Well, I think it started with, if I had a dollar for everyone who told me not to take the job, 
I'd, I'd be wealthy. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's Maryland was in a situation. They were at the bottom of the ACC, moving into the Big Ten, didn't have a, a, a tremendous recruiting background. They had some excellent teams, um, early 2000s and stuff. But I, I think they had one top 50 recruit in the history of the program. And you're going into a conference where the top 10 recruiting uh, classes are, you know, highly, highly Big Ten heavy. So what I told the kids when I got here is, listen, I think we can train. I think we've, you know, we've we've helped uh, be around and helped some of the best players in the world do their thing and go on and play pro uh, and had a small part of their success. I looked at all of the other female sports at Maryland. You know, if you look at field hockey and lacrosse and hoops, they've they've won. So you have what you have. The the biggest four things I've always told recruits is, listen, we play in the best conference in the country, and I think I can help you become a pro. That's number one. Number two is academically, it's a top twenty school. I think it's it's the part of the world where if you come to Maryland four four years later, you don't have you know, huge opportunities, it's because you just didn't invest in it. I mean, it, everything everything here is ready for you to, to hit massive home runs in your life, not just on the court, but in the classroom. Um, I think the Under Armour piece has been huge, and they're very supportive of our sport, and they come here to test stuff, and they've been more and more involved in women's volleyball uh, as we've gone. Um, and, and, you know, I think that the combination of all of those things uh, kind of rolled into one gives you an idea of at least be attractive. So that, that was what we started with. Then what happened is we got a couple of the top kids in the country to commit. And then when that happened, uh, you know, I've always said it's kind of like walking into a restaurant with the best looking girl ever and people are trying to figure out what you got going on, you know. So, um, that, that to me was, you know, they, they wanted to know why these kids were going to Maryland. And then they'd come and visit and then they'd sit down with us and they'd see how we train and get to know us. And then it just kept spiraling. And, and now we're all the way through 2020 with, I think, really elite recruiting classes. And I think that the, the next, you know, 5, 10, 15 years of this program is, is ready to roll. Now, along those same lines, is there a particular story, you know, since you've been here, since you've been on the road recruiting that kind of would give fans an idea of this is Steve Ayer, this is how he, how he does his business? Yeah, I mean, some of them I can share, some of them I can't. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, this is the kind of thing that I think is funny. I, I mean, when we recruited uh, Katie Myers, who's here, um, Katie, that's Bixby. Hey, Bixby, chill out, baby. <laughs> um, so I think I, with Katie Myers, we were recruiting her, and she had committed to play for us, and people didn't know enough about her. And I, and I was at a big-time club match. And I came and sat down between, let's just call it five or ten of the most, you know, the biggest programs in the country. I sat down and they're in the warm-ups and Katie hits a ball and bounces it over top of everyone. And two of the coaches turn to each other and say, who is that kid? And one of the other ones goes, I think they're going to Maryland. And they all kind of looked at me and I was like, I'm going to the bar, gents. See ya. And, I got <laughs> up and her dad was there and uh, he's a great guy. And I just, I gave him a high five and I was like, see ya. And that was kind of it. It's like it, it, there's just a different vibe to it. I think we've been really good about about uh, taking a look at kids and, and knowing and then trusting in them and believing in them and knowing they're going to end up being elite. And we're we're batting a thousand on on the kids that I thought were going to turn out a certain way. And um, and they're having a great experience. So, you know, we're untraditional, obviously. I mean, I'm I'm when I get on the phone with someone or when I'm communicating uh, with people, it's it's very different than the the old school Big Ten you know, guard. But um, I think if you're a, a young kind of excited student athlete that's looking for something that has a different edge and has a different feel to it, it's a pretty attractive option right now. Now, as a head coach, it's not just X's and O's. You're that CEO role. You know, you, you carry that role in the program. What do you enjoy about you know being in that? 
that role as like kind of the CEO of Maryland volleyball that maybe outside the, the normal X's and O's of being a coach? Yeah, I think, you know, the coaching part of it really is, is, um, is limiting because we only have so many hours a day to spend with the kids and, um, you can only game plan so much and watch so much film. I, the, the thing that I was so excited about coming to Maryland was, you know, we didn't really have a booster club rocking and rolling. The attendance, you know, we went from 336 people at home matches to 25th in the country in attendance. Like, it's gone crazy. Um, all of those things I really enjoy. Um, you know, I, I have a very entrepreneurial side to me. I've been in the world of business. My, my wife and I lived in Newport Beach for four years, and we were involved in, you know, writing a children's book. We had a uniform company in China. We, I, we just had a whole bunch of stuff that we did. And for me, that being outside of the college game and then coming back into it um, changed the way I looked at a lot of it. So that's one part of it. The second part of it is that the organization is completely flat. So I don't think for a second that I'm, you know, I'm at the top of the totem pole. I'm in the mix every day with a staff that's really smart. Um, I know I'm not the smartest one on staff, which is how, how it should work. If you're a good CEO, you want to have people around you that are better at other things. And I don't let my ego get in the way. You know, it's if they have good ideas, if they think we should be going in a different direction. I'm, I'm big on that. I think we've uh, developed really good relationships with the athletic department, top to bottom. Um, I think everyone around here at Maryland wants us to have success. And, and I thought we've we've treated people really well and the community as well. Um, you know, local club volleyball stuff, volleyball enthusiasts, fans, friends. Um, they all matter and I've made sure everyone feels like they matter and that I, all of those things I think go into any successful business. You, you cannot win at this level um, unless you've got great people around you at every single level and there's nothing from the people who take tickets to the help clean the gym to all of that. All of those people matter to me a lot and that's an important part of it. Three albums, Desert Island. You got to bring three albums. What are you bringing? Wow. Uh, so... Mob Deep, Quiet Storm. <laughs> there you I go. think I think there's about 25 hip hop albums in 1993-94. I thought that was the best year for hip hop, and I kind of cut my teeth on that. Um, I'd have to go, uh, you know, one of the notorious big albums mm. oh, from his yeah, prime because yeah. it's just got a combination of stuff that you know stuff that you can uh, you can play that makes you angry or stuff you can dance to, and and lyrically I thought he was incredible. Um, and then, yeah, this is going to be out of left field, but i got to have some R. Kelly, man. Yeah, R. Ke not... It's got to be R. Kelly. So I, I had two true hip-hop albums, and then maybe R. Kelly's 12 play. A little R&B, yeah. a little slow jams. Yeah. You know, those, yeah, man, those I, long nights on the island. I, man. I, I yeah. think Something. that's what I'm talking about. I think I need, <laughs> I need a, little, uh, a little balance. But, yeah, I, certainly I'm an R&B uh, hip-hop guy and um, have been since uh, my first ever album I bought, I think, was... Uh, Public Enemy, maybe when I was Ooh. eight. Oh, wow. So, That's yeah. classic. And that was on LP, so that was vinyl. So. Canadian-based question, Bieber or Drake? Both. And it's a tie forever. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I tell the girl, you know, I, I like I like Bieber. But, he, you know, Bieber grew up just outside of our, our hometown. And, you know, he loves the Leafs. Guy drops, you know, drops uh, platinum albums. So I got to love him. And then Drake is, you know, my son is named Padraic. P-A-D-R-A-I-C. Just so I can call him Drake, <laughs> and so my wife loved the name Podrick, and you know, like it's spelt a little differently. But you look at the golfers like Podrick Carrington, Podrick Carrington, yeah, yeah, you know, and whatnot. Um, 
but yeah, but I agreed to the name and I loved it. And then when she found out it was 99%, just so I can call myself Drake, she, you know, we had a, you know, we had some words, but you know, <laughs> life, will, life will go on. So yeah, so that's, uh, you know, Drake's doing okay. He's two, but, uh, but he's got enough swag for both of us and he'll be okay. We're back here on Here the Turtle with the offensive coordinator of the Maryland football team, Coach Walt Bell. Coach, appreciate you taking some time for us. Absolutely. Not a problem, man. One of the things I wanted to start with here is you have the the Maryland offense rolling at a rate that a lot of Maryland fans haven't seen, especially recently. First of all, have any of these offensive guys that are just accruing these numbers gotten you anything? A gift? <laughs> a basket? Something to just like... It's no. Ty Johnson. I mean, he's getting 25 yards of carry. No, absolutely not. <laughs> um, you know, and you don't expect it to be that way either. You know, I... I my job's kind of a thankless deal when everything's going right. You know, nobody really says anything in terms of the personnel. You know, winning cures a lot of that. And uh, But when things go wrong, yeah, it's definitely uh, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. So a little bit thankless, but uh, no, man, I, I have an unbelievable group of kids, you know, and, and even our great ones, the ones that you would think – or you would hope would be a little bit selfish that, you know, they're not selfish at all. You know, DJ is a great kid, ultimate team player. You know, Ty Johnson has zero issue when it's low in there. I mean, Ty's rooting for low as hard as Lowe's rooting for Ty and Jake. I mean, you know, we have a great group of kids, you know, and uh, I think as long as we stay healthy up front and uh, we can continue getting better up there and progressing up there as we go, you know, if we can keep Kasim, you know, progressing the way that he is, you know, hopefully there won't be a lot of problems. But, uh, no, I can definitely tell you there's no, no gifts under the tree, you know, <laughs> no, no apples for teacher or anything like that yet. But, uh, no, hopefully we can keep this thing rolling. Well, to have a great offense, to have a successful offense, you have to have great players. Every step along the way, you've been able to recruit and bring in great players to, to your systems. What is it about the recruiting process that you enjoy or that you've really you know, sunk your teeth into as a coach? I think – you know, I enjoy the whole thing, you know, as admitting that I am a football addict. You know, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I love the whole thing. I love, you know, from the entire 18 month process from watching tape and identifying the kids that you like, that you'd feel like to be great system fits to the first time you ever talk to their coach, to the first time you ever talk to the kid, to building a relationship, to, you know, getting the kid on campus for the first time, the competition involved that's in recruiting. Um, you know, going back to the relationship piece, you know, the relationships you get to build when you know each other, which at the end of the day is, is what's going to, you know, finalize, you know, that kid showing up on campus in August. You know, I, I enjoy the whole thing, you know, and uh, I think more than anything else, not only just the recruit, but the developmental process is when they get here, you know, and you get to see, you know, all the potential that you saw on a 20, 30, 40 play highlight clip, you know, for the very first time, all the way till their second or third year when they finally realize the potential, you know, and fitting in that system and playing at a high level, you know. So the recruiting process from A to Z, you know, all the way until they leave, you know, I, I love and enjoy. And it's one of the things I love about this level of football. You know, the other thing, too, is a lot of it's luck. You know, we didn't recruit DJ Moore. We didn't recruit Ty Johnson. We didn't recruit, you know, we didn't recruit a bunch of these guys that are playing for us right now. You know, and so, you know, sometimes it's finding the pieces that you have, you know, and, and being honest and saying, hey, maybe the last guy did a nice job recruiting some good players. You know, and uh, a lot of people don't want to do that anymore. You know, they all want to say when they get there, there's no players here, the cupboard's bare. But, you know, I think the previous staff, I mean, we, we've got – are we as deep as we'd like to be? Nobody in the country is. But you know what? We've got some pretty good players here that have done a great job buying into the program and, and what we're trying to get done on offense. And uh, they're doing a great job. And, and I know we're – you know, 
everybody thinks we're a great offense right now because through two games we've done a nice job but at the end of the year you know we'll see but I think we've got the ability to, to be pretty successful as the year goes yeah you know, I think the biggest thing to me is is it's twofold you know there's there's the personal reasons you know I mean at the end of the day every person that I come in contact whether it be you know it five in the morning you know and it's the people cleaning our building when it's just me and them in the building or whether it be one of the kids that play for me or whether it be somebody I run into at a restaurant I mean you know everybody's personal goal should be that everybody they come in contact with that their lives are a little bit better for it you know whether it's just a smile on their face or a way that you make people feel you know and so just as a human being you know everybody I come in contact with I hope you know, that, uh, and again, it may not be a lot. It may just be a, hey, hi, how are you doing? You know, just being genuine and authentic. But you hope that everybody you come in contact with, that, that you make their day better. You know, and the more time you spend around on that day, it may turn into you make their life better. You know, and so uh, that, that's, that's not only a football thing, but that's a personal thing. You know, on the selfish side, you know, I, I am of the belief that until your kids actually know that you're invested in them regardless of outcome, that they won't play their best and that when they do know that you are invested whether it's one yard or a thousand yards or zero snaps or a hundred snaps whether they when they know that you care either way you know and you can break down some of the uh you know they, they learn a lot better they're a lot more willing to do what you want to ask them to do because they know that you have their best interest at heart you know so from a personal side it's what you should do you know from a professional side i don't think they play their best until they know it's true you know, and so it's it's some of it's self-serving and it helps me, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, if I was, you know, a, a lawyer right now, I would hope that everybody that, you know, that I came in contact with that some way or another that I could, you know, help them help their life, help them be better. And in turn, hopefully it helped make me better too. I'm interested in that con combat sports connection as a combat sports guy myself, big MMA boxing guy, sort of what about that sport in you? takes your interest you you're, you know you have don't have a ton of time when you're outside of football what about that sport specific, just, just sports grow, specific? growing up around it really yeah you know i grew up boxing wrestling and so um did that, you actually that, participating in that stuff yeah oh okay absolutely. awesome there you um, go. but uh you know just just growing up around the sport you know having a dad that, that you know you know idolized boxing boxers you know and just especially in football when when in my business my life is putting my life's work in the hands of a bunch of 18 year old 22 year old <laughs> kids and how they perform for three hours in front of a crowd you know is ultimately how i'm judged you know sometimes i think just the purity of there are two two souls in there you know and it is guy versus guy and you only count on you and you know i i think the the purity in that you know whether that be you know collegiate olympic wrestling boxing kickboxing tie mma i think the purity of that sport and uh, the things that those guys have to deal with you know from a training camp you know to the weight cut you know to how you know football is a job that when you're in this building ruins your life you know combat sports wrestling you know any of those things i mean they dictate your life for 24 hours a day what you eat how you sleep what you think um you know the the i mean you know just the whole lifestyle of that you know has always been really that's what i admire most about those guys you know and so just that's why i've always gravitated to that because i think those are the guys that i admire the most you know 
you know, football, you play real hard for six seconds, you kind of get to stand around. <laughs> if something doesn't go well, you can blame somebody else. You know, in, in combat sports, there there is none of that. It's it's you and another guy in there, and, and, and there aren't really any excuses. And not only do you get the literal, but you get, I mean, you get the figurative, you get the literal, you know. I mean, uh, you know, you get the, it's not, if you get knocked down, get back up. No, it's, you really get knocked down, and you really have to get back up, you know. And so... Um, I think just, just the admiration I have for those guys, you know, more than anything else is what draws me to it. We're back here on Here the Turtle with the head coach of the Maryland women's golf team, Deanna Cantu. Coach, thanks for coming on with us. Thank you for having me. One of the most interesting things I feel like about the collegiate golf world is it's such an individual sport, but then you also have that team aspect to it. And you talked about having freshmen and trying to get all those people together. What is it like to sort of create team chemistry in a sport where you can sort of just be in your own head and in your own world playing your round? How do you have, you know, the girls show support to the other ones and sort of make sure everyone's in having that team atmosphere? Yeah, and we talk about it a lot. And it's something really hard as a coach. Um, I was talking to other people about it. It's you play the game as an individual for so long and then you come to college and are expected to be a great teammate that quickly it's just impossible um thankfully a lot of our players were part of their national team before coming here so that that helps a lot uh but we talk about it Kristen and i we talk about it a lot in regards to having good energy and you know pumping each other up because you might not be playing together but we see each other on the golf course so if you're not having a great day, we talk about making the other person's day better. Um, so, so we've done a pretty good job so far. And like I said, the personalities on this team this year are really good. And, and they've kind of merged really well uh, so far. So it's been fun. Now, something we heard about you, uh, Coach, when you came to Maryland, you scheduled meetings with head coach Brenda Freeze from Maryland Women's Basketball and Missy McHart from field hockey. What did you maybe learn from them, and what has it been like being in the fraternity of coaches here at Maryland? The, yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, I did do that, and <laughs> I think it was a very smart thing to do. You know, you don't get to go places where there's such, such big and successful women leaders you know and and for them to be so open and embrace you and try you know be there to help you was awesome and I think that's that's the best feeling I've had at Maryland um you know seeing coach Mahari being here for a long time and being so successful and opening her office door to talk to me about anything that I'm curious about to learn or even Brenda and and it's funny you said that she she texted me a couple of days ago when we won and and that feels awesome and feeling that support especially from a you know another female is big and and having that at Maryland is huge and you don't have that at many other places I'm a little bit interested I think Maryland fans might be too of what sort of a typical week is like as a golf coach, just because I think, you know, when you talk about a sport like soccer or football, you know, they have the practice from 3.30 to 5 or whatever the time frame is. Golf is a little bit different because you're, you're working on individual skills, but also maybe like playing rounds. What is it like for you sort of a typical day or typical week coaching Maryland golf? Well, you know, taking all the office work aside, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a, we do play 18 holes, which is, you know, a four hour round. And I don't, I don't think a lot of other sports practice that long no. of a period of time. They might um, like to, but yeah. Yeah. They, 
they don't. But so so we play probably two or three times a week. We play 18 holes. That's four hours. And uh, they, they work out in the mornings a couple times a week. But then we do have those kind of Tuesdays and Thursdays are days where we have small practice groups where we can have a little bit more individual time. And, um, you know, whatever player A you might need might might be different than player B. So we try to kind of help them individually on those skills. Um, but, you know, it's it's busy and, and people don't realize is when we're at tournaments and the last, I think every tournament we've played, it's been 36 holes the first oh, day. Wow. And you actually, I mean, you have zero free time. You're there, you're on the golf course at 7 a.m. and you're not done till 7 p.m. And that stuff is, I mean, they should get a lot of credit for for what they do. It, they have to come back and, you know, get all their schoolwork done, and and it's it's different than other sports. So I think that managing time with golf is is very different than other sports, and it's very difficult. How do you get around at a tournament to see every single player? Because everyone's at a different spot on the course. Are you just like driving thirty miles an hour in a golf cart <laughs> trying to figure everybody out, or what is the process like to try to see everybody and give encouragement or give advice? Yeah, and and uh, Kristen, my assistant coach, is she's the owner of the golf cart. She, <laughs> she uh, she's I'm actually <laughs> she well she's training for a half marathon, so she by the time so we're, she's sprinting around the course. Yeah. <laughs> no, but by the time we are playing, you know, we're at the tournament on the golf course she's already ran six miles that morning so (laughs) I give her the card she can have the golf card Uh, we try to actually pick certain holes uh, that we think might be uh, better if we're there for strategy you know kind of helping them out if we think there's certain holes that are a little bit difficult we try to be there and so that way we they all play in different groups but in a row so you go there and you watch the fifth player and then you know you stay there for every group you see all of them and then you kind of move on so and having two coaches that can coach at you know during the round is helpful so that I guess they can see they probably see us six times and you know during the round and then um, if we feel like someone needs us a little bit more or we need them to finish strong because they're counting or like Laura this past tournament she was not only under pressure for the team title but also the individual title so um you know i was able to finish with her the last few holes and and make sure she was you know calm and and positive and one shot at a time so that's kind of our strategy we're back here on here the turtle with current maryland field hockey assistant coach olympian national champion everything in between katie bam katie thanks for joining us thanks for having me What's it been like for you coming back as a coach? Obviously, you had a lot of success here as a player, um, served as a staff member before, but now as a full-time assistant coach, what has that been like for you to to sort of be able to give your advice to the girls every day? I think the best part about it is to talk to the girls openly about what it means to be a Terp for the freshmen incoming, even for the seniors that, like I said, didn't have quite the experience that I had. I can sit there and say, you know, this is what it takes because I lived it. I can talk about what it means to wear the jersey because I'm the only one on staff that wore the actual Maryland jersey. So that's a pretty cool thing. And I think they really respect that a lot because I lived it with them. I, I was literally in their shoes just a little while ago. Now, obviously not the only time Missy's had to recruit you to come to Maryland. You were at one point one of the highly regarded recruits in the country at a high school. What did Missy do specifically to get you to come to Maryland? What was that recruitment kind of like? The first time or the second time? Both. <laughs> yeah, probably the first time. 
Oh, the first time. I mean, I was a nightmare to probably recruit. I, <laughs> I hated the recruiting process. Um, I just, I'm not much of a phone talker and all the coaches call you and they want to talk to you. And I'm like, listen, I'm a 16 year old kid. Like I want to go to homecoming. I want to go to the prom, all these <laughs> other things that they don't even care about, you know? So I was totally a normal kid and I was like, stop calling me seriously. Stop emailing me. I don't want to talk to you um, or anybody, any of them for that matter. I remember one time, <laughs> Missy might kill me for putting this on a podcast, but one time she sent me an email and my number was 16, obviously. So she wrote 16 reasons why you're not answering my emails. Like, <laughs> number one, your house was struck by lightning and you lost your computer in the process. Or if number two, your computer fell in the bathtub. Or <laughs> number three, you haven't returned home in 10 days. Like all these ridiculous, crazy stories that were so outlandish that you were, I was like, who is this lady? <laughs> I was like, mom, you have got to read this email. And little did I know I stepped on campus and it felt like home. So I guess all of her craziness didn't perturb me from coming here. Speaking of 16, you were the youngest player to ever make a national team at age 16. Well, I'm sure you've talked about it before, but what was that process like? You're competing against grown women to like make a national team I mean how did that process go I mean looking back I mean is it still kind of crazy to think about absolutely it's it's super weird to think about I mean I remember walking into the locker room right after I got my learner's permit for driving and I was like look I got my learner's permit and someone's like look I got engaged and I was like <laughs> oh okay <laughs> like very different levels of life at that moment. The um, prom discussion with those girls, yeah. probably not. What you're yeah, at. I was like, guys, do you want to see my prom dress? And they're like, what? <laughs> you know, so it was very different, but we made it work. I mean, I still talked to a bunch of those girls when I first joined the team that were on there and became mentors to me, really. I mean, when you're so young, you look up to them a little bit, even though you're playing alongside them. So the, the memories are great. Um, when you think about it, the conversations are a little different for them I'm sure you've now made two Olympic teams um, and been able to experience that um, and I've always been interested just by not even necessarily playing in the Olympics but being able to walk in the opening ceremonies or experience that feeling of representing your country when you got that the first time what was that like well actually I didn't walk in Rio we okay. our team wasn't able to walk because we had a game the next day so mm. we chose as a team not go. to go because obviously while the Olympics is amazing um, for the entire world, you're really there to do one thing and that's to compete. So we chose to be there and be professional and do the right thing to have the best possible outcome. In London, I walked and there is really no way to describe the feeling. I mean, I guess NFL people kind of come close to it. It's every game for them. <laughs> but you walk in and there's just a packed house. But there's such a connection with every U.S. athlete. Like when Kobe Bryant is walking next to you and he's like a little kid in a candy shop, just like you are, you're like, okay. I mean, we're all kind of now at the same level, even though you're a multimillionaire playing in the NBA, but we're still sitting here with our phones out and like, look at this moment. Like we're exactly the same and we're there to represent one thing and that's your country. So when you step out and, you're, and your country's name gets called and everybody's cheering and there's a thousand lights and they start lighting the flame and you're like, wow, I made it. I made it to this point. And that's really the best way I could describe it without you know, taking you through probably the videos and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
as far as, you know, memories from the Olympics, I mean, that might be one of your favorites, but I mean, are there any stories or memories from your, your Olympic days that, that stick out to you? Not necessarily stories, but the experience, the opening ceremonies and playing in front of 15,000 people. That's the most people I've ever played in front of. Um, and the dining hall is always pretty cool. Like there's, <laughs> when you're a lot of McDonald's. There is not when you're playing, but after you play, there's a lot of McDonald's consumed. Um, but when you just, you're sitting like five seats down from Serena Williams and you're like totally normal and they're having conversation, you're having conversation and everyone's eating the same food. It's, it's just so cool. I mean, there's really no way to describe how cool it is just to be like, you're sitting around people who you find famous and have always found famous and yet you're just sitting there eating food and you walk through and you're in the same line as someone and you crack a joke or someone's wearing USA gear and you're like, yeah, go States or something like that. It's just really cool. Most interesting person that you, I guess, perceived to be famous that you had a conversation with, or was it just sort of in passing stuff? Um, hmm. Converse. I mean, I guess I got, I got a cool picture with Michael Phelps, which is probably my claim to fame. There you go. There you, <laughs> you go. You know, I didn't have a conversation Baltimore with guy. him. Yeah. I didn't get to have a conversation with him, another. but yeah. picture, you know, um, Ricky Fowler, he's pretty cool. Yeah. He's like so down to earth. Yeah. There you go. Just totally normal. Like, hey, how's it going so far? I heard the food's all right. You know, <laughs> accommodations. Like right when he got into the village, um, our team pretty much stalked him and ended up having a lot of conversation with him. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Bubba Watson came to one of our games. So yeah, I was about to ask, that is sort of the cool thing. And it seems like it especially happened in Rio, a lot of the athletes supporting each other. And you, that's sort of like, you know, on a bigger level of what college kind of is where you all are supporting each other. Do you feel there's sort of that connection between, you know, when you're on a team like that, sort of bigger than yourself, that kind of, you know, connection between people? Yeah, there's a super connection. I mean, you walk in the training room and you see someone who's getting treatment and they're like, oh, how'd your game go? Just having that conversation like, oh, when are your finals? How's it going? How's it looking? All that sort of stuff. There's just a camaraderie and, and an understanding that everyone is there for the same reason, representing one country. And um, the conversations that you have and you're so supportive, someone comes back with a gold medal and you're like, yeah, go USA. Like, and they walk around, you just high five them. You don't even know their name. They can play a sport that you've never really experienced and you just high five them and their smile on their face. It just, I mean, it's kind of a camaraderie that's like no other. So that's some of our fall sports coaches. Then we entered the winter, and, and obviously before basketball season, we had to talk to Mark Turgeon and Brenda Freeze, who head up the Maryland women's and men's basketball programs. Then we talked to two coaches that have seasons that are kind of in between everything else, in uh, Kerry McCoy for wrestling and Brett Nelligan for gymnastics, and a lot of great stuff from all of them. Brett Nelligan, the uh, former diver. Former diver. <laughs> that had to... Uh Go from gymnastics to diving to back to back to gymnastics when he became the head coach. Doesn't want to dance to music in his routine. <laughs> to refuse to do that. He was awesome. We went and learned some stuff from him. We did. Mark Turgeon with a great Allen Iverson story. Great Allen Iverson story. Rooting for the Chiefs, not wearing a tie, which has become a little bit of a storyline. You heard that here <laughs> first on Here's the Turtle. We just just remember who broke that story. The important news coming from Thankfully, us. Thankfully, unlike Brett Nelligan, we didn't do anything physical with Kerry McCoy because he probably would have beat us up. Yeah, I, I would still probably be in the hospital if that was the case. Uh, you and me both. And then uh, Brenda Free is always a great listen and you know talked a lot about her team and, and, 
and really said stuff that was echoed in, you know, that you heard in volume one stuff from Aisha and Kristen about how, you know, good the chemistry is in that team. So let's get to some of our winter sports coaches. We're back here on Here the Turtle with the head coach of Maryland women's basketball, Brenda Freeze. Coach Freeze, thanks for giving us a little bit of your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You're back here for your 16th season, and that's a lot of seasons. We were walking down here. I didn't realize you'd been here for that long. What what keeps you going every single year? What sort of gets you out of bed in the morning for another season of, of basketball? Oh, my gosh. Can you believe it? <laughs> 16 years. But, you know, it's a, a great question, and actually, I think – Obviously, when you love what you do and and have the passion uh, to to be able to be around such young people and and your staffs and um, that's what drives me. I just I love the relationship piece. Uh, I love uh, you know each team and every new season, but just really the the pieces of putting everybody together and and having just an incredible staff to be able to do it with. Coach, I think one of the biggest storylines coming into this season is the the Taiwan experience you got to have with your team at the U- World University Games. What did that do for your team? Being in close quarters, you know, spending so much time together uh, leading into this year. Well, you know, it, it was. It's such an incredible experience on so many levels, you know, to, to have that opportunity within our team and our program. But, you know, strictly from, I mean, first you talk about from a basketball experience, you know, to really get almost, you know, a portion of your season in the summer, right? To, to have six games and the exhibition games and the practices all summer with, you know, a freshman and a sophomore point guard that, that are really coming into, you know, a new, you know, new position and having to be ready, uh, you know, just that international experience for us you know and again new players having to step up with the the loss of Shatori Walker Kimbrough and Bree Jones and then they really built their chemistry out there I mean you talk about uh you know everyone thinks it was a glamorous trip which we're really fortunate to uh, have it but staying in the Olympic Village and 95 degree heat with 80 percent humidity close quarters you know eight girls you know in a living environment with two bathrooms so you know they learned a lot about each other that uh, I think will really help us as as we understand each other even sooner here going into the season. Brenda, you've, you've carved out you've carved out a pretty illustrious career as a coach. But you know, looking back, you know, years and years ago, what made you want to get into this profession? What was it? Was there a moment when you thought, you know, what this is what I want to do? I want to make coaching basketball you know, my life. You know, I remember sharing with someone. I don't know if a lot of people know this story, but. Uh, back when I was the kind of that that young person kind of evolving into the sport is, you know, I told someone I want to be the next Pat Summit. And, uh, you know, and then you kind of evolve, obviously, as an assistant coach and, and then becoming a head coach and then realize that you want to become your own self and, and who you are. But, uh, you know, just seeing it at, at that that level, uh, you know, I, I've always loved the game, been extremely passionate about it. So when injuries cut my career short when I was a player, you know, I really started kind of watching coaches and uh, taking in as much as I could uh, from a leadership and coaching end that I I, you know, turned a negative, obviously, of uh, four foot surgeries into a, a really strong positive. So uh, that's something that that really kind of obviously when, when you look at today, um, really motivated me. Two of the people those cameras have picked up through your coaching career that have grown up really with your program are your two sons, Tyler and Marcus. And I'm wondering, are they beating mom one on one yet? well they'll tell you that (laughs) Uh, for sure they're legends in their own mind (laughs) 
but yeah, I'm really uh, blessed. I'm really fortunate uh, to have two amazing boys that uh, still want to be with their mom and their dad in fourth grade and, and think it's pretty cool and uh, just came to the kitchen table. Can't wait to, to for field trip day. They had to go mark the calendar this morning. Oh, so, field trip day. Um, they're, they're already into when is field trip day and how many days. So it's uh, pretty <laughs> awesome. We're back here on Hear the Turtle with the head coach of Maryland men's basketball, Mark Turgeon. Coach, thanks for giving us a little bit of your time. You bet. I love the name, Hear the Turtle. Good job, guys. <laughs> we tried our best. Um, first question, I think it's the question every Terrapin fan wants to know. Are you going no tie or are you going tie for the season opener? You've done a little bit of both in your career. Yeah. What's the fashion choice going to be? Yeah, it's. I'm going no tie. Wow. Uh, I'm okay. going no tie. I haven't gotten any emails yet telling me to wear a tie. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've done it all year with media day and everything. I've gone no tie. I did it uh, in the exhibition game and I just feel real comfortable. I've actually ordered some shirts with a little design in them to go with my suits. Hmm. There we go. Wear no ties. So hopefully it's lucky. Coach uh, Alex Len was in the DMV last week. You went out and visited yeah. him playing against the Washington Wizards. Just one of many Terrapin players playing professionally right now. What's sense of pride do you get seeing so many of your guys in the professional ranks right now well we have a lot of guys playing we have a lot of guys in the nba we have a lot of guys playing overseas making really good money which is that's great for me because you you know they got a window that's not very long and they got to make as much as they can and they're all being successful and they're all being great people in their communities that's that's really important um proud of all of them uh you know proud of my guys that aren't playing basketball i think we've Recruited some really good kids. We've graduated 26 seniors in a row here. We're 100% graduation rate, uh, four-year players, and um, we feel good about that. But it was great to see Alex. Alex is really having a good year. He's rebounding at a great clip. Uh, their team's better. You know, and he needs to have a good year because it's a, it's a pay year for him. And, and um, uh, the more money they make, the more money they can give back to us someday. So, uh, so we'll see. But I'm really proud always of thinking long term. Always down. thinking long term. Um, you've obviously made your name as a college, you know, head coach and assistant. But you did spend some time in the NBA with the Philadelphia 76ers yeah. on a team with Allen Iverson. Yeah. Any good Allen Iverson story you can tell us? And also, what did you just learn from that NBA experience that you had? Well, I loved it. It was, you know, it was the top level of of, of, of basketball and, and learning from great coaches and. And, and watching the best players play, you know, I didn't have a, I didn't really get NBA until I got there, and you know, everybody's ah, oh, the regular seasons, not this and that. Those guys play hard every night, and they give it everything they got, and their bodies can only do so much. And so, I really learned to respect the NBA athlete and what they go through, and the NBA coaches, and the coaching is just terrific. I could be here until tomorrow, you know, talking about Allen Iverson. <laughs> he, I love coaching Allen Iverson. But I'll just one quick one is he'd come in every day to practice and he wouldn't feel like practicing, as you guys know. But he was a great <laughs> practice player. And he'd say, Tell your daddy, which was Larry Brown, I'm not practicing today. <laughs> but he'd have a little some colorful language there. And uh and I was like, Come on, Alan, just get loose. Just tell your daddy I ain't going today. And every day that kid, once he got loose, he was our most competitive guy and he was he was fun to coach. You've had it sort of a, a good coaching lineage. You talk about Larry Brown, also a guy Roy Williams you learned from. What are kind of lessons do those guys teach you that you sort of take forward always today? Yeah, I've been very fortunate. Um, you know, Roy Williams is one of those guys, um, if you want something bad enough, you be better be willing to work for it and, and treat people the way you want to be treated. And, and I think he's really helped me in the profession develop friendships, treat people the right way. And then as you get older, 
you get to know more people and more people want to help you if you're a good person. And uh, he, he, you know, he taught me a lot about that. And he's a terrific coach. Um, you know, he was really, he's really tough on guys. He's really demanding and, uh, but in a positive way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's, his record and what he's done speaks for himself. And Larry Brown was a guy that, you know, taught me to, to love to coach. I mean, he loves basketball and coaching and, and he loves to teach and, and both of them are great teachers and they taught me how to coach and, and, you know, if a guy's an inch out of place, you need to let them know. And, um, so I've been lucky, and they, they're both great recruiters. They're both great people, and you know my high school coach was pretty darn good too. He won six state championships. That's so not bad. <laughs> I've been around some really good ones. Playing playing off that a little bit, what was it kind of when your playing career was winding down? What made you feel like okay, you know, I, I want to make coaching my life. I, I want to make a career as a basketball coach. Yeah, you know, I was like everybody else. I thought I was an NBA player, and it kind of goes back to my freshman year. I think a lot of people have heard this story. Coach Brown set me down. I just set the assist record at Kansas for a freshman. I was like, I thought I was pretty darn good, right? Had a little long hair, braces, and a lot of acne. Feeling yourself a little bit? Yeah, I was <laughs> really feeling myself. I was about 150 pounds. And um, he goes, what do you want to do? And I said, Coach, I'm going to play in the NBA. And he looked at me and, like, turge. He said, you're never going to play in the NBA, but I think you've got a chance to be a pretty good coach someday. And I'll never forget that moment. It was bittersweet. It was like, dang, you know. Had this great year. My basketball dreams were kind of squashed, but I knew what I was going to do with my life. So the next three years at Kansas, whenever I was on the bench, which was a little bit too much, I was studying coach and how, and I sat in the first seat. So I'd come out of the game. Normally players sit down by the players. I always sat in the first seat uh, as my career went on just so I could learn more and watch him coach. And I think from that time on, I wanted to be a college coach and because um, you can just make a huge impact on kids. And it also started with my dad. My dad used to take me around. He saw a passion I had. And we used to go, and he knew all the high school coaches in Topeka, and we'd sit behind the bench. And I got to know the coaches. So I've always kind of watched coaches and studied coaches. And it's, I didn't know until, you know, I was 19 that it was where it's going to end up. But I'm glad it, it is, and it's, it's a great way to, to make a living. You were nicknamed the surgeon during mm -hmm. your time at Kansas. Now, you're for your ability to carve up defenses, do you still hear that nickname ever come around? Yeah, why is that not? Why are we saying that now? That's a great nickname. <laughs> great I know it's a great nickname. <laughs> it's a great nickname. Um, I don't hear it. I, some Jayhawk fans will, when I see them in airports and stuff, I'll hear it, um, but I don't hear it enough. But yeah, it was great. Uh, uh, I was in my senior high school. High school coach Chuck Miner said it in the newspaper and it kind of stuck and then it stuck with me at Kansas but for some reason it hasn't stuck in the coaching profession so we'll see maybe we can bring it back yeah, yeah we'll just let's bring it back, back. we'll, we'll bring it turtle. back here the turtle can <laughs> bring it back we're back here on here the turtle with the head coach of the maryland wrestling team carrie mccoy coach thanks for giving us a little bit of your time hey it's great to be here with you guys thanks for having me Kerry, I've been fortunate enough to travel with your team uh, over the past couple of years, and it seems like whenever tournament we're going to or a dual match, there's a line of people ready to talk to you. You know, the, the wrestling community is such a tight knit community, and that those relationships are so important. But you know, describe you know how important it is in this you know wrestling community just to to build those relationships and have all those people across the years that you're familiar with. Yeah, it's huge. You know, this weekend going back to to California, I still have a lot of good relationships. A bunch of my former wrestlers that wrestled at Stanford were at the match, and you know, going to the football game and then just people in the community and 
It, it's it's great because what we talk about our guys all the time with, it's great, the wins and losses, the trophies, the tournament titles and all, but it's really the relationships and the type of person you are. You know, So 10 years, 20 years after you're done, you could say, hey, that guy was a heck of a wrestler, but you know, blah, blah, blah. You don't want to have the butt. You know, he was a great wrestler and a great person, great person to be around, great, you know, ambassador of sport, great. And um, and that's what it's really about. And, you know, I, I think I've done a pretty good job of trying to be that and, you know, make sure you build good, strong relationships. And, you know, I'm sure there's some people out there that may not be uh, be as 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 happy with uh, with me as a person or me as a coach, but you, know, you can't worry about all those, you know, the people that we have good relationship with. And, you know, my ultimate goal is to go out there and be the best that I can and help these kids reach their full potential. And, you know, sometimes, you know, people take it one way or the other way, but overall, I think I've done a good job of, of building strong relationships and, and helping to promote the sport and keep our program just, you know, in a position where we can be the best that we can be. We talked to Katie Bam just about representing her country in the Olympics. What was that moment like for you when you stepped in the opening ceremonies or was there something in the Olympic Village, something that sort of signifies, you know, obviously see a person that was at two Olympics what was it like for you yeah so the the opening ceremonies it's it I mean you know again cliche words don't do it justice you can't really explain the feeling but um you've got professional athletes you've got you know NBA tennis I mean just tennis just most world famous athletes you know especially from our country and you guys are all there together wearing the red white and blue hanging out in the staging area you know talking swapping stories and um I remember walking into the to the arena with Alan Houston, who played for the Knicks, and you know we were talking about this was a time when Patrick Ewing was kind of towards the end of his career, and we're just chatting back and forth, like, hey, what do you? Because I'm from New York, and uh, what do you think's gonna happen? Is he gonna stay? Is he gonna play? You know, just being able to have that conversation. I mean, no insider info. No, it was just like we're just talking, you know, and um, you know, taking pictures with Venus and Serena Williams and Martina Navratilova and Tim Duncan. Like I remember all those people around. And it's like it didn't matter how much they made, it didn't matter how famous we were, we were there to represent USA. And so you get that feeling, and then you walk into the stadium, and for for you know most of us we never have that experience. You walk in, there's 110,000 people that just explode. You know they're chanting USA. You see, you know, and you know NBA players, NFL players, you know they see that, they feel that on a regular basis. But you know for most of it, it's the first and only time we get to, and that really epitomized that it didn't matter. Where you're from didn't matter what you did. It mattered right there. You're representing yourself, your family, and your country. And, um, you know, for that, you know, short time, it's worth a lifetime to just say, hey, this is what it's all about. It's not about winning a gold medal. It's not. It's about representing, you know, all the hard work and dedication and support you had to get to this point. This is what it's all about. And, you know, and obviously two, three hours later, you go back and you start focusing again on winning medals. But it, it's an unbelievable feeling. And, you know, and, and I fortunately, it's, you know, technology is is, is wasn't as good as it is now, but I remember having like a an eight millimeter camera that I was <laughs> walking through and recording it, and, you know, going back and it's all grainy film and footage and all. But uh, but yeah, just every every once in a while, I go back and I look at that, just entering the arena, and it's like wow, you know, it's just again, words can't ex- describe it. You talk about that big stage and that big arena. You know, UFC has become very popular in our culture, and wrestling has become almost a feeder sport yeah. for that sport. Is that something you ever flirted <laughs> with the idea of getting into UFC, or, yeah. or you just wrestling through and through? No, well, so um, it wasn't as big when I was competing. Yeah, um, it just started. And there were a few wrestlers that tried it, but it was you know started off as kind of like a tough man contest, and you have to fight six or seven guys in a, in a night and like you know, a go through yeah. a bracket, and and that had no appeal for me. My my potential direction I had two thoughts when I was finishing up my career one was to, to go to the NFL um, you know try to play football and then the other one was was WWE WWF back then you know professional wrestling those are two things that I kind of thought about yeah. um, but I, I 
you know, love wrestling, love coaching, and didn't really want to get out of that realm. And then obviously after 2000, you know, getting through another four-year cycle and, and going to 2004. And then at 2004, I was 30 years old and, you know, both windows had kind of closed. But yeah, UFC, no. And, and you hear people say all the time, I don't want to have to get punched in the face to to get paid and you know when people say well if you're good enough you don't get punched in the face say hey, everybody gets punched, punched in the, the face, face. <laughs> so, yeah definitely uh not not looking for that but it, it's 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 entertaining just this weekend so one of my one of my Olympic teammates Daniel Cormier he's a light heavyweight champ he came to the match and um you know Jamil Kelly's associate head coach at Stanford he was on the Olympic team with us so it was just great that the three of us that are doing you know different things different places in our lives uh, we're able to reconnect and you know under the umbrella of wrestling so you know the sport truly does create some great opportunities and, uh, you know, build some lifelong friendships and, and exciting. We're back here on Hear the Turtle with the head coach of the Maryland gymnastics team, Brett Nelligan. Coach, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, first of all, you did gymnastics yourself yeah. at UMass. When you're out of practice with the girls, are you ever just like when they can't do something? You ever just like showing off the skills? So like, do you still have it at this point? Or yeah, are you never, never. <laughs> no, so, you know, there's a time in every gymnast's life where, you know, mentally in my head, I, I can still do everything, but I, I know that the body doesn't agree with me. And there, there's that threshold of when that occurs. And when that date comes, you don't get back out there. It's, <laughs> it's just too dangerous. Was there a moment where you tried to do something like after you were finished your career and you crashed and burned? You were just like, okay. This yeah, is when I was younger and I was an assistant coach, you know, you'd, you'd try to get out there and still do stuff. And then the next day I'd just be so sore. Like, <laughs> you know, I just got to stop before this gets serious. But yeah. Brett, you spent a lot of time in College Park. You've grown up here. Your father was the coach here. I mean, Maryland Pride, we talk about it a lot. You've lived it your entire life. I mean, what did it? What was it like for you to, to come back and get the head coaching job here at Maryland? You know, I'm sure it was you know, a dream come true. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely, absolutely was a dream come true. You know, so I came, I graduated school, and I wanted to do grad school. And I always joked I was going to do grad school here and just help my father. I was his assistant for six years. And then I was going to get a real job. You know, that's what I told him, a real job. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, things just started to go well. And um, we started to, to put some recruiting classes together. Uh, and then when my father retired, um, they asked me to, to take the job as head coach. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hooked. I'm addicted. So, um, and then within four years, we were in the top 25. So... Um, it's just fun. You know, you get hooked and you, and you can't get out of it. Brett, gymnastics is such a perfectionist sport. Yeah. You're critiqued on everything. You're judged on everything. Have you found that perfectionist attitude or mindset has trickled into other parts of your life where you just try to keep it? Nope, that's just how I, I, I'm going to coach. But, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you'll notice <laughs> you'll notice with every gymnast, you know, if they're not type A and just obsessive about everything in their life, they're usually not that good at gymnastics. Uh and our, our athletes are no different. They'll come, you know, I had a gymnast come in here one day in my office and she said, I need to drop this class. You know, it's going, it's, it's bad. I got to drop it. And I said, well, let, let, why don't you get your first test back and let's see how you do. And she got a 92, <laughs> you know? So it's like, that, that's the gymnast mindset is like everything in your life, you want to try to be as perfect as you can. And, um, there's some good things to that. And obviously there's some bad things cause it can drive you a little bit crazy, but, um, that's that's the mentality you have to be to, to be a, a good gymnast, I think. Brett, you have a pretty interesting background. You mentioned UMass. When you were there, the program got cut, so yeah. you, you switched to diving. I mean, what was that transition yeah, like? Yeah, it's a crazy story. So we were, I was on the team. Uh, we were really progressing. So my freshman year, we made it to NC2A championships for the first time in school history. We were coming off uh, three-time conference champions. 
that year we actually had the number one team in the country come in Penn State and we beat them at home I mean we were really on fire and then the 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 school decided they wanted to make some changes they cut seven sports and we were heartbroken um but it taught me a lot you know and I I learned from it the funny thing is is I had surgery at the end of that year and I'm coming back and I'm no longer an athlete and I don't have trainer I don't have doctors I, I you know I have nothing so I call up the diving coach and I said, hey, uh, could I join the team? Uh, I know nothing about diving. I've never done before. <laughs> but I said, you know, I'm a gymnast, so I'll figure it out. And she's a great lady. She was a, she was a platform diver, and she was alternate to Olympic team. Fast forward to now, her future, uh, her son just was in the Olympics in Beijing. But, oh, wow. So she says, yeah, come on in. So she invited me to practice, and I'm in, I show up in a cast. I'm in a cast from my hand all the way up to my shoulder. And she's ready like, to get in the pool. Ready, yeah. <laughs> and she's like, "What are you doing?" I said, "Look, look, look. Let me just. I'll watch practice every day. I'll pick it up fast, um, uh, and I'll do my rehab, and I'll I'll jump right in." I had no intention of diving, at all. <laughs> I'm not a diver, yeah. so I just needed the rehab. So I did the rehab. I did the conditioning. I was clear to start, and I came to her. I said, "Coach Hicks," and I said, "Thank you so much, but you know, I'm not a diver. I'm gonna head home." but I really appreciate you letting me do this. And she handed me a Speedo, and she said, you put your little butt in the Speedo, (laughs) and you get back out here, and you're going to be a real diver. And she she didn't let me, you know they have foot entry dives where you can go in feet first? Did you know that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She didn't let me do any of those. She said, no, you're going to be a real diver. She taught me uh, six dives on one meter, 11 dives on three meter, and we competed. We... uh, It's funny, we won the conference championship and it was awesome, it was a great experience. So that's it for volume two of our best of 2017 mixtape. Make sure to listen to volume three next week. Happy New Year to everyone in Terp Nation. Go Terps.